I'm Sarah. And I'm Fallon. I'm the mother-in-law. And I'm the daughter-in-law. We are both church ministers who work on college campuses. So on this podcast, we're engaging the questions we hear in our ministry to better equip those who care for the emerging adults in their lives. We are here with Rick Mars, a Hebrew scholar who has been a professor of the Old Testament for 42 years. He has a PhD from the Johns Hopkins University, and his research has focused on worship and ethics in the Old Testament, which we are super excited to talk to him about. And when I was a student at Pepperdine, you were my provost. So this is extra cool <laughs> for me. Uh, so thanks for thanks for being here. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. So let's get started. Thanks. With I'm some glad questions. to be here. Yeah. <laughs> Rick, I think many of us are confused and disturbed by some of the dark and brutal passages in the Old Testament. In the words of our students, the violence in the Bible sucks. <laughs> it, it does. And one question I heard from a student just this week is this. Is the God of the Old Testament even the same God of the New Testament? How can the God who seems to have ordered so much war and death, like, you know, I think of the Amalekites who God told them to destroy all the women and the children and even the infants. How can that be the same God who said, for God so loved the world, God gave his one and only son? Okay, um, so let's start big picture. And um, you quoted one of the passages that's probably a key one. Um, when you think about this line, this question about is the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New the same? Um, traditional Christianity has said absolutely. Uh, one passage they've used to support that is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, it doesn't say God decided he would now start loving the world. Um, the other, another would be people are often surprised to find out the book that t- talks about the love of God more than any other book in the Bible is Deuteronomy. And um, the only, I jokingly tell students, the only book on pace with that was First John. If he had written several more chapters, he could have caught up. But Deuteronomy is the book. So that's big picture uh, that um, God has not had a personality change and suddenly decided he would look at his creation differently. It's very clear that he created because he loves and because he cares. Uh, probably the most, one of the most famous theological passages in the Old Testament, Exodus 34, characterizes God as a God who is compassionate, gracious, and full of steadfast love. And that's an important one. We can come back to that later because it has a line about punishment. So that's big picture. When you talk about the violence, um, A couple of things. One, there's been a lot of discussion over the years, and especially recently, about what some of these terms really mean and how to translate them, because in the traditional translations, it has been that God says, wipe them out completely. And there are two things that are running there. One is the historical reality. Another is um, some linguistic issues. So historically, if you read the Old Testament closely, a number of these people that that traditionally have been translated as they wiped them out completely or obliterated them, then you'll read a few chapters later or you'll be in another passage of Scripture and you'll find out they're still around. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions is, if they wiped them out completely, why are they still around? 
And so apparently what seems to have happened may not have happened. So that has caused some scholars to look again at some of the terminology. And to put it simply, a number of scholars are now convinced that um, some of these terms that previously were translated to wipe out completely or uh, annihilate or obliterate would be much better translated something like, um, and I want a complete victory, take complete control. To give but one specific example, um, I'll come to the Amalekites here in a minute, but, but if you take an example um, where it says to kill all men, women, and children, and you read the larger context, it's clearly a military battle. And so the question would be, why would women and children be on a military battlefield with soldiers? They wouldn't be. They would be in another location. And in fact, we have a case where they presumably are miles away. Not that the Israelite soldiers could not have traveled another 20 miles to do that, but that raises a question. So it does change the picture. It's still an issue of of violence, Mm -hmm. but it does change the picture. And then finally, I will say, and we can follow up if you want, on the Amalekites, um, If you track them, they have a history with Israel that is a bit unique. And so they, in a number of passages, they are seen as quite different because they are sort of quintessentially seen as a group of people that consistently and repeatedly um, tried to thwart God's purposes Mm. and God's people. Mm. And so they're, they're seen in that light that they're doing everything they can to undo what God is trying to do through his people, Israel. Yeah. I really hear you saying something that I try to do working with students. Um, And, and honestly, it's, it's good to hear it in this context that we always have to go back to the big picture when we come across these hard questions And I know sometimes students do get stuck, or I get stuck. Any of us get stuck on something that we just can't seem to get out of our minds. So I think it is a good practice for us to always remember, go to the big picture of God's love, and then let's go look at these difficult passages. Let's look at the history of translation. Let's ask scholars what they think about these more specific things. But as we know, sometimes that just gets stuck in your head and it's, it's really hard to move on. Right. And I would say the other is um, a real challenge we all have is trying to figure out the context out of which we're working. Mm-hmm. So we, um, by we, I mean um, those in the modern West and especially Americans, uh, we are in a context where we, under, we think in democratic terms, we have all sorts of options for how we will deal with difficult circumstances. And I think it's fair to say many of us have never experienced what it's like to be um, in a situation where you're absolutely powerless and have no control over your circumstances. And that would have been Israel and Judah for most of its history. That would have certainly been um, the situation Jesus would have found himself in. So where I'm going with that is um, as, as we think about, you know, what it was like for early Israel to enter the land and be surrounded by people who were far more powerful, who were arguing that they had far more powerful deities than the God of the Israelites, um, it creates an interesting dynamic in how one deals with that, how one gets a foothold in a land where uh, everyone around you is saying, you have no right to be here, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's something to at least keep in mind. Yeah, I think that also, not only do we have the big picture of Scripture, we step back and we go, what's the big picture of 
who we are, mm. where we are in our context, how we're coming at this ancient story and this this history of what God's doing in the world. So I really like that that you that you put in that that mm-hmm. in there as well. And what I'm hearing from you too is it also is a question of how we're reading the Bible at all. And if we think of the Bible as God's divine word that kind of plops down into our laps, that's going to raise some really challenging questions and put us in a really big pickle of how to address those questions. I think of a student that I had in one of my classes over the summer, and we weren't even reading some of the hardest texts of scripture. Like that wasn't the purpose of the class. But a couple of times she encountered some passages of the Bible that we were talking about. And she was like, I didn't even know this was in the Bible. I grew up going to church. I went to Sunday school my whole life and I can't get vegetables out of my head. (laughs) (laughs) And and so she was like, how do I get these vegetables out of my head? Ellen, for you, that's challenging because you didn't grow up in the church and you weren't raised on veggie tales, honestly, like my kids were. (laughs) Yeah, no, that that raises another issue. And actually, that's... uh, you know, an interesting dynamic to think about um, at what level and what stage do you develop different understandings? And so, you know, my sense would be Veggie Tales or um, childhood stories, Bible story books. Bible story books would mm-hmm. be a good analogy to Veggie Tales. Uh, over the years, I've looked at uh, children's Bible story books and to be interested in what stories do they include and what do they omit. And interestingly, um, my experience is they do include a few stories that have violence in them. So you would not be surprised to find uh, Noah and the Flood, of course, in there. But it's not pictured in any terms having to do with violence. It's pictured in terms of, you know, kind of this cute little ark with a bunch of animals sticking out, floating around. Um, we put you, it in children's nurseries. Yes. It's like a decoration. It's a right. nursery yeah. decoration. Or you get, but it's a scary story. Yeah. yeah, Or you get Samson, but we only tell the parts of Samson that have to do with him defeating Philistines. We don't tell his um, episodes with Philistine women, which is a key motif in, in the biblical story. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, yeah, so, we uh, Veggie Tales calls that Samson's bad hair day. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit more to the story than Samson having a no good, very bad day. I mean, yeah, so, yeah. So you can figure out a way to incorporate some tales that do have violence in them. I will say, as a side note, one of the interesting things when we were talking about language, uh, we use the term violence for uh, human violence, and we use the same term when we talk about, uh, or a number of scholars do when they talk about God. God behaving violently. But in Hebrew, uh, the term that's used for human violence is never used for God. Oh, so really? apparently, apparently God doesn't engage in human violence. And uh, as a side note, but, but think about that. In my experience, though, I don't think you find any biblical stories in children's books that have to do with sex. Hmm. And so where I'm going with that is at what point do you start introducing people to a, a fuller understanding and a deeper understanding of Scripture, I would argue you do it at the college level. Mm. Because in college, the traditional 18 to 22-year-old student is when you're making a decision about um, the inherited faith you may or may not have and whether it's going to be your faith or not. And so the analogy I would use um, on the question of, you know, when do you kind of grapple with that, that, um, you know, if... Uh, if a five-year-old wants to know, you know, how did we get here, uh, you don't int- start introducing them to some extensive scientific 
you know, understanding or whatever, you tell them the story of Genesis 1. And, and yet, when you come to the 18 to 22-year-old, hopefully they will have a far better understanding of the implications of Genesis 1 for their larger worldview. Um, I do think, you know, the analogy I sometimes use is, uh, hopefully you don't take a five-year-old to an R-rated movie. Um, at some point in one's life, though, one may see R-rated movies, but we, we figure out with our children when we expose them to what. And I think that's the way we think about Scripture. You know, at what point do they need to have a much more mature understanding that it's more complicated and um, far more intricate than they thought as children? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I can imagine how it would be really startling for someone who's grown up in the church in particular to get to college and start reading some of these disturbing stories that include rape and war and all kinds of other awful things in the in scripture. Like scripture is not a children's book. Like Sarah said, I didn't grow up Christian, so I didn't have to do some of that like re-understanding of some of those stories of how it was discussed to me when we were younger versus, or when I was younger versus, you know, as an adult, what advice would you have for emerging adults who are reading some of these disturbing stories for the first time, maybe seeing stories that were sanitized for them as children and now reading them with fresh eyes. And especially if they have some of these preconceived notions of, of this being, you know, God's divine word that has plopped down from heaven, or even just like everything in the Bible is, you know, is, is this handbook for how we live. And then we see these awful, disturbing things from the people that in some cases we were told to model our lives after. I don't know. What what should we do with that, Rick? Uh, well, I would say um, it's, a, it's a good situation to be in. One, it forces us to grapple with the degree to which um, ancient people were like us and not like us. Mm -hmm. um, it forces us to grapple with um, key themes in stories and what is the story really about. Um, and then we start grappling with, uh, yeah, the nature of Scripture. Uh, how does Scripture function in such a way that it has one message to a five-year-old and another message to a 20-year-old? Mm. Again, I'll, I'll pick one I do, my field's Old Testament, but to give an example, um, you know, when I was a little kid uh, in Sunday school, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which virtually everyone knows or has heard of, for a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old, I think it's legitimate to say there's no question one function of that parable is be a good neighbor, be nice to people. But I would argue that at the 20-year-old stage, you look at the larger context, that is a story that is really told to a person. He's labeled a lawyer, but he's a religious professional, and it is really told by Jesus to sort of cut the guy apart and lay him bare before God. Mm -hmm. And so you have that understanding when you're much later, which is a much more mature understanding. It, it's to someone who thinks they know everything there is to know about God and suddenly realizes they may not know God nearly as well as they think. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say, you know, um, not to be afraid that uh, a number of people have done this, and mm. you come out the other side with a deeper faith, a more profound faith, it allows you, you become very much aware that uh, Scripture is full of flawed human beings, mm. and some a person can be a hero and still um, have a downside and, uh, and still, you know, be loved by God and be a person who loves God deeply. 
I loved that example because what I hear from that is not taking a story and sanitizing it for children, but taking a story and treating it kind of like an onion and, and saying like, okay, this is a layer that makes sense for this, uh, for this age group. And we can peel back more and more layers as someone grows into a story instead of sanitizing it and making it palatable and then startling them and their older years, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So uh, my wife te- taught kindergarten for years, and and she still teaches Sunday school. Teaches the kids. So this past week, John the Baptist was the lesson, mm. and they actually made um, the equivalent of some kind of food that was to be locust and wild honey. Um, as a side note, the kids weren't terribly impressed with John's <laughs> diet, but but that was the focus of that story, and appropriately so, in a way of showing you know his uniqueness, his faithfulness to God, and everything. Um, and they got that. They did not uh, end that story by telling about him losing his head. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not that that's not an appropriate story, but that's a story for a different day and perhaps a different age group. And really, that so idea, yeah, that idea of this onion. It, it continues throughout our lives, no yeah. matter how yeah. old we are, whatever experiences we have as we move through life, we go back to a story and there's always more there. Mm. I think I think sometimes we present these stories as, as if there's one point mm. and it's that one point or that one moral lesson forever. Whereas one of the most beautiful things about about scripture is that we can go back again and again and again. So to me, as Fallon, as we're working with, um, you know, emerging adults, that's an exciting thing to share with them, Mm -hmm. not a terrifying thing to share with Mm -hmm. them. That's one thing I try to do is just present this as beautiful, a beautiful Mm -hmm. journey um, in life. Mm -hmm. And, And to me that, that sounds better than something we have to master. We don't really ever master these stories. Even Rick with a PhD and all of these things has not, I guess, Rick, you have not mastered (laughs) these stories fully. Correct. No, and in fact, watching how things change over the years, uh, jumping all over, but um, I have found for the past several years when I ask students um, their favorite book of the Bible, if they have one, or the Old Testament, interestingly, increasingly, uh, they talk about Ecclesiastes or Kohelet. Mm. Oh, Fallon had that. Fallon and Nate had that in their wedding. From well, and one yeah. of the reasons I've had students tell me is um, they find it encouraging that there's someone in the Bible who doesn't have it all figured out. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I had a student one time tell me, um, I, ju- I just find it very encouraging to think uh, if there's someone in the Bible who's acknowledging he doesn't have it figured out, then maybe there's a place for me. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes. Oh, you yeah. know, that's so, exa- um, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's um, what we want. So anyway, yeah. uh, it's the journey that becomes very significant. the the search. I love that. Um, You know, for me, speaking of not having it all figured out, as I probably was around the, you know, in this age group, 18, 22, 25, um, those who spoke really well to me were the the psalmists. I discovered the psalms in, I found myself in the psalmist. Mm. So, you love the psalmists when they praise God for making the making creation. I love nature and find and understanding God through nature. You you notice that they teach you about Jerusalem um, and they uh, praise God's power and might. And I love that part of it. But then, if you really read the the Psalms. They also are kind of vindictive <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> and you wonder, what am I going to do with this? They say like. 
like, you know, strike my enemy's jaw and break out their teeth or smash the nations to pieces like pottery or make them like dung on the ground. I mean, these are, you know, and it gets worse, you know. Uh, so I, I just I just wonder if these are our examples of how to pray. What do we do with these psalms, yeah. Yeah, like people are always going to be kind of vindictive and terrible. <laughs> and how do we deal with the fact that they show up and that their words are honored as holy in scripture? That's They're, disturbing. Well, let me, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let me take the relatively easier Okay. Uh, Psalms and those are the lament, or com- they're called complaint psalms. For a, a number of Christians, I think the very fact that laments or complaints are in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms, and that they're the majority uh, is surprising. And think about in worship how many times you've sung praise songs and how many you've sung lament. Uh, we heavily weight it toward praise. And I would argue it's because we don't understand or haven't fully appreciated lament and complaint, to put it differently. Um, I think a number of people think people who complain to God or lament or cry out to God, it's because they have a lack of faith. And I would argue it's the opposite, that what they can't square is their experience with their faith. And when your experience, what you're currently experiencing, runs headlong into your faith, uh, what you do is cry out to God, and you ask questions, and... Um, the more challenging the experience, often the more intent the um, the complaint or the cry. And so that's why the language and the laments, apart from what's uh, what you've mentioned is what seems vindictive or hateful, mm-hmm. is um, is rather blunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you step back and think about it, uh, the psalmist calling God to wake up, to pay attention, to get with the program, uh, to quit delaying. It's pretty blunt language if you think about it. And I would couple what I said earlier. If you put that where you can't square your experience with your faith, and especially if your experience is you um, you are being oppressed or maligned or slandered or abused by incredibly powerful people and you see no way out, not to justify it necessarily, but it would not be surprising if one would say, um, I wish this person were dead or harm would come to this person sure. to find relief. And I think that's the context in which we hear some of these prayers. And I would say, um, while you find this in the Psalms, um, it is of some int- interest or note that Jesus does himself uh, use the lament or complaint psalms, and I think we have a case where um, he says that certain cities, because of their behavior, should be cursed. And so you get pretty graphic language. A number mm-hmm. of people say that's appropriate for Jesus, not for us. Mm-hmm. But I do think we have to grapple with, you know, or um, cut people a lot more slack when they're going through horrific situations, and they're trying to figure out, you know, what do they say to God? And, uh, and it's not just in the Psalms. Uh, one of the comforting things I find is people who are true heroes of the faith, Abraham, Job, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, cry out to God and essentially telling, you know, asking what does he think he's doing. And Abraham I like because it's interesting, you know, when Abraham says, you're really going to destroy a couple of cities, what about the righteous people? And mm. God doesn't say, how dare you talk to me that way? He says, okay, go find me some righteous people. And they keep working until <laughs> down, down. Abraham yeah. can't find any, you know. So it's yeah. not like God is offended by people. Um, bluntly, I'll, I'll finish with this, that um, 
I think, sadly, from my standpoint, what we often have in church is what I call pious dishonesty. Mm. People are afraid to say what they really think. And what God can handle is blunt honesty. Mm -hmm. Now, he may respond with blunt honesty. And I'll close with an example. I was teaching Sunday school this past Sunday. We're doing the Psalms. And I asked them to give me images. You know, so what's your image of God? And people were giving king, shepherd, father, mother. And um, I had one person who said, well, quite frankly, no, no picture really comes to mind. And I said, well, nothing and her response was, no, when I, when I think about God, quite frankly, and this is a person of deep faith, um, I, I feel confused, troubled, frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, okay, now we can get it on the table. You know, mm-hmm. what is it about God that's mm-hmm. generating those kinds of feelings? Yeah, I, I do think that's rare and among people to be able to say and right. be honest and blunt like that. Mm-hmm. So it's really beautiful that that could happen in your Sunday school class and speaks to your community. But a lot of times when we're working for young people, that is not easy for them. Maybe it's because of how they, what they've been taught about worship. Maybe it's because of cultural factors here in the Western world or in the United States or in the American church that they might feel, or I've heard them say they feel, if they lament, if they grieve, it's because they don't have enough faith. They feel judged or they judge themselves by their grief. So, you know, as we're, I've become pretty comfortable with grief and lament and faith, but that came with time. I don't know, what advice would you have for us as we work with young people or for them about how to give yourself permission to grieve? Well, I would say um, you mentioned one that I think is crucial is um, think in terms of uh, what community do you want to be a part of? Mm-hmm. And it's really important to be a part of a community. Um, I've met very few people who have the ability to go through these things by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm saying that as an introvert, mm-hmm. and <laughs> someone who tends mm-hmm. to spend a lot of time with myself. But uh, really challenging circumstances. It's with the community. Uh, I do think there are pressures in our society where people have expectations. They just kind of assume that we know uh, what appropriate and inappropriate behavior is for a believer or for a child of God. We think we know um, what you can and cannot ask or what you can and cannot express. I think that's breaking down, though, in a number of churches, Mm -hmm. and that's a good sign. So find a place where where you can say that and feel like people will affirm you and embrace you, not distance themselves from you. Yeah, I think it's refreshing when we get to experience it, when we get to have people be very real. I mean, authenticity is a word for young people, and I think it's an important word that that they're teaching me more about authenticity mm. in faith. Young yeah. people that I work with bring up, they're not going to do it if it's not authentic, which I think goes back to the psalmists. Yeah. They're authentic, yeah. if, if nothing else. They really show us this authenticity, yeah, this authenticity in faith. One of my favorite stories that I love to share with uh, students is Genesis 32, when Jacob wrestles God or the angel of God up for, up for interpretation. And, and there are so many layers to that story that are great that we could draw out. But my favorite being that Jacob is renamed Israel, the one who struggles with God, and that God invites these questions, this bluntness, uh, whether it's with our emotions or with our doubts, 
about the Bible, about the way we encounter God through the Bible. And, um, and I just love that so much. And, and hearing you talk about some of the ways that the Bible becomes more complex with time, that, uh, that that's an exciting journey. Like you were saying, Sarah, that it is intimidating in, in a way that draws us closer to God. And that helps us become more fully who we are in light of who Jesus is. And to me, that's just so much more rich than some of the typical responses that I often hear from students of what they've gotten when they've expressed questions or doubts, which is, all you have to do is have a childlike faith. Just have a childlike faith. Stop asking questions. Or God can do whatever God wants. Stop asking questions. Or that's dangerous. Yeah, it's dangerous to question God. It's dangerous to uh, struggle with these really challenging texts in the Bible or this really challenging experience that you've had. It's not just biblical texts. It's violence and challenges that we experience in our lives too. It's not just historical or biblical. It's, it's real, it's lived. Why is that kind of dismissal of questions such a terrible response? (laughs) I have my own ideas, but I would love to hear more thoughts on that. Let me, uh, I'll mention a couple as Sarah was talking. I thought, you know, the other, for young people, I think what may be helpful for them to keep in in the back of their mind about when, if they do express doubts or concerns or complaints or whatever, one of the reasons, quite frankly, that they um, make people around them uncomfortable, mm-hmm. um, and I'll speak for, you know, the generation older than them, is because I do think there's a sense that my generation and even those younger than me by quite a bit, um, there is a sense that we ought to know or have the answers. Mm. And the reason uh, these situations make a number of people uncomfortable is you're sitting there realizing, I don't have an answer to this. And, and or you come up with incredibly simplistic and unhelpful answers. You know, well, this happened because, and you give, again, you're giving to a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old an answer that you would only give to a five-year-old. Mm. And that's a, that's a major problem. So I think the degree to which young people can remember, they are making people uncomfortable who think they should have an answer for everything, and they don't. Mm. Uh, that's to keep in the back of their mind. Now, my joking comment to why that response that you mentioned, Fallon, is so bad, it's, it's the equivalent to a parent saying to children, uh, you know, why do I have to do something? Because I said so. Mm. And parents do that. We've all done that. That's an awful answer mm. to say to a kid <laughs> because I said so. I do think Scripture helps us at this point. Um, one of my favorite passages is in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Most of us know the first part of Deuteronomy 6, mm. the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is mm. one, love, love the Lord your God. But if you look at the end of that passage, the last four or five verses, beginning in verse 20, there's this wonderful story about uh, where Moses says, how should you respond to your kids when they come and ask you, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to obey the commandments? Why do we have to obey the laws? And Moses then tells the parents what their answer should be. And it is not uh, because God said so. Mm. Moses says, here's what you tell them when they ask you. And he says, you tell them, remember that God took us out of Egypt. God led us through the desert. God fed Mm -hmm. us. God gave us water. God brought us to Mount Sinai. He provided for all our needs. And because of that, we now respond this way. 
And I've told students, that's crucial to how you read the Bible. If you think the Bible begins with us, then you're hard put not to see it as a rule book and a because I said so book. Yeah. Um, if the story begins with God and what he has done for us and his love, we've kind of come full circle that God quintessentially is a God who loves, then how we are responding is not because God said so, it's because we are mimicking the way God has treated us. And that does change how we behave. You know, that makes me think when we think about God's love, one of the things that young people really care about is justice. So love and justice go together. How do, how do we help put those together when we think about Hebrew Scripture? Yeah, I think when, when often when any of us think about God and we think about God's love, if we're not careful, we isolate it. And we have a picture that we come with what love looks like. Mm. And it, if we're not careful, it tends to be warm, fuzzy. And there are moments when it certainly is that. But we don't think about love um, being manifested through discipline or through tough times or whatever. And I think you see that a lot in Scripture, that you see a God who is passionate about justice and justice is linked with love. And so mm -hmm. it's really a rather interesting dynamic when you think about different passages of Scripture. Earlier I mentioned um, Exodus 34, and it's a hallmark because it talks about God uh, manifesting steadfast love, grace, mercy. And then it says he does punish people to the third or fourth generation, but he shows his love to the thousandth generation. Mm -hmm. And so many people latch on to the punish to the third and fourth. But if you're thinking in an ancient Near Eastern context, uh, the nuclear family has three or four generations under one tent. Mm -hmm. The grandparents, parents, children, grandchildren. And so the, the real emphasis of that passage is God's disciplining love. You can see an end to it because mm -hmm. it's on the horizon. Mm -hmm. But his love, steadfast love, is limitless. It's to the thousandth generation. Mm -hmm. You can't really count it. Which is, and so I yeah, think keeping hopeful. in mind mm -hmm. uh, the connection between love and justice is really important today. Yeah, that, that's hopeful in light of the hard things that we grapple with. So I really appreciate that. I think when we're grappling with these hard things about violence or understanding things we'll never understand, we mm -hmm. couldn't end with a better uh, with a better word. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having yeah. me. Yeah, it was fun.